Whoa, just another humdinger of a news day ahead here on Global News Radio as we keep you up to... I just like saying humdinger. I'm just going to say the humdinger of a day. That's indeed what it is. Coming up in the next hour, just a little bit more, about an hour from now, the Premier will be making an announcement along with the Minister of Education. Be talking about things like daycare and possibly summer camps, and all of that is fantastic uh, as we begin to see even better news. The numbers, as you heard, pretty good today. Numbers down a little bit. 230 is our new number, 14 deaths, but the uh, test number is not great at 13,500. We're going to talk more about that later on. But the topic of today, question for you is what do we do about the fuzz, the heat? The 5-0, what do we do about Jake? What do we do now? Police and policing matters. It is deadly serious. And we are at a point in culture and in our city specifically where we have an opportunity now to change course, if that is what we need to do, to reassess how it is that we fund police, what we expect of police and who we want to lead the police. So Chief Saunders, was it something that I said? Did what? How did what? Mark Saunders, of course, with his surprise resignation as the chief of police yesterday. If you are a regular listener to this program, first of all, thank you. Uh, Second of all, you know that I have often called the chief's communication skills into question often pointing out that part of the role of being the police chief is to communicate effectively to the public, not just to officers, but that's part of your job, too, and that, by and large, Mark Saunders has not been winning at that. Then last week, he spoke from the heart, and he talked about his reaction to the death of George Floyd. And then on Friday, of course, he took a knee with protesters, and that was, I think that was celebrated in some quarters, not in all. And I'm hearing that in some police quarters that was not uh, viewed so positively. But nevertheless, there was the police chief communicating effectively. And then yesterday, the surprise, the hammer drop. He's out. He's done. And we went right back to prickly and inscrutable. Here is the chief's answer to the very relevant question of, uh, chief, why now? As chief, uh, it's uh, the expiry date is when you retire, uh, when your contract is up, or it's when you finish a project or a mission. Um, or in the particular case in the environment we're in, when we've got COVID-19, there is no way that I was going to leave this organization unless I knew that I was satisfied that the men and women of this organization were in a safe spot. And we're there now for that. As a dad, as Mark Saunders, uh, I can pick any time. Uh, but uh, in my 37-plus years, I've never had an August off. And this is going to be the first time that I will have an August off with my family. That is... Mark Saunders, Chief Mark Saunders, with his explanation as to why he is chosen now 
as the time to resign. A lot to unpack in that, this kind of stream of consciousness. It begins with something about a contract, and I'm going to get into that because I think that's really what's behind all of this, and I'll explain to you what's really going on there in just a moment. So he begins with the contract thing, and then he talks about I believe he's talking about, you know, some kind of milestone or, or or getting something done with the force or leaving the force in a better place, which I, I think there's some questions about that. Is that is that true? Have you, it, you know, is there something you can say, well, yeah, got that done. That's that's dealt with. And then we go right into COVID-19, which last I checked is still an ongoing thing. And then we move into August with your family which I think is perhaps the most coherent part of that entire statement. So what does that all mean? Here's something. Keep in mind, I don't know if you noticed this. Last week, just talking about the chief, Doug Ford said, I wish we'd have him around for five more years. And it struck me. I was like, what, what does that mean? What does that mean, Doug Ford? Because, of course, that's not up to Doug Ford. And like I said, I'm going to get into the contract issue in just a second. But I think there's some speculation here. And I, I, I really think it's quite possible we might see Mark Saunders working for the province. On the front bench, you ask? A politician, you ask? As you point out, well, wait a second, the last two police chiefs have gone on to be federal cabinet ministers. So... Is that in the chief's future? Well, here is a direct question from Austin Delaney of CTV. And what what, what kind of work are you looking at, chief? Oh, I want to be a politician, Austin. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, not. Uh, okay. Is that a shot at Bill Blair? Is that a shot at Julian Fantino? Is that actually saying he's not going to be a politician? I don't, you know what? I don't think so. Not in the short term, I don't believe. I think there is a strong possibility of some kind of role at the province for Mark Saunders. But let's get to the prickly part, shall we? Let's get back to the prickly pear that Mark Saunders is. So now you heard his kind of explanation there as he described what it was that motivated him to do it now, to pull the shoot now. Here's the next question. The very next question from Wendy Gillis of the Toronto Star. I'm wondering if you can articulate when exactly you made the decision to leave the Toronto Police Service and why you're doing it eight months before your contract was set to expire. Yeah, I, I, I answered most of those uh, questions, Wendy. Um, and, and the shock piece, listen, I, I'm still here for another two months. It's not like I'm walking off in the sunset. We, I don't really think you did, Chief. I don't. And that kind of goes back to the way he talks, you know, often defensive. And it's like, OK, I, you know, I think you're going to get you're going to get more than one question about why now. I mean, this, I mean, this came out of the blue. People didn't expect it. So you're going to get a couple of questions about um, hmm, maybe, and you know, maybe you might, you know, think that through before you offer a jumble of an explanation and then, like, you know, put your hands on your hips and, like, I answered it. But that is Mark Saunders. All right. Here's the deal. You may recall that the way the police chief's contract, let's get back to that thing, because that was the first thing you said, remember? Contract? 
the way the contract works is a five-year contract. Uh, and then the Police Services Board, and I'm going to get into what the Police Services Board is in our next meg- segment when we talk to Kristen Wong-Tam about defunding the police, which is f- really something interesting. We've got to really dig into that, what's behind that saying. But the Police Services Board essentially a- gives the contract, hires the chief, and it's a five-year term normally for the first go-around. And then the Police Services Board can decide whether to re-up or, or not. And in, in the case of Bill Blair, for example, they re-up for a pair of fives. So 10 years for Bill Blair. When it came time for Mark Saunders' time to be up, they gave him an extension of one year. One year. Now, just you know, put that in like NHL coach sort of perspective, right? Like, that's like, really? A year? Well, thanks for the vote of confidence. Like, really? So they gave Mark Saunders a one-year extension. His contract is up in April 20 of 21. But get this, Catherine McDonald reporting on Global News that built in to his contract is a six-month severance. All right, so you do the math. So his contract is up in April of next year. What are the odds of him getting extended again? Mm, probably not great. Probably not great for a bunch of the reasons I just talked about. So he's not going to get extended. And he's thinking to himself, I, I, you want me to stick around here and take the heat and all this, you know, the, the defund police and all the rest of this? And I, I gotta, I'm going to take this abuse? For what? Can you blame him? So now, as I've said, it is a time and an opportunity to reimagine where we go from here. Who is next? What is it that we want the Toronto Police to be? When we look at the images that we've seen south of the border, and if you think to yourself, well, that's a different thing altogether, I will remind you of the G20. I will remind you of a litany, a list of people who have had extremely negative outcomes in their interactions with police. Sammy Yatim, anybody? The names and the list of names go on. And we've talked about this whole idea of bad apples. Well, if the apples keep turning out to be bad, maybe you get a different supplier. Maybe you go to a different orchard. So where do we go from here? Who do we put in charge? One of the names going around, you might have heard this, Peter Slowly. Remember him? Peter Slowly was passed over the last time around when Mark Saunders got the job. He left the Toronto Police Force. He went into uh, the public sector. uh, And now, uh, just recently, he was hired by Ottawa, the Ottawa Police Force. He's now the uh, police chief in Ottawa. And if you think we're poaching that guy, I I do not see that happening. I mean... You're not going to poach. Toronto is not going to poach somebody from Ottawa. That does not look good. And I think that is very unlikely. Maybe from within the force. Maybe outside of the force. But the the question I think we all have to have right now at this point about Toronto City Police. What do we want it to look like? When we come back on the Alan Carter Radio Program, Kristen Wong-Tam is going to join me and talk about her proposal to cut $122 million from the police budget. What does that mean? What would that look like on the streets? 
An important conversation this hour about the future of Toronto Police. What do we want the Toronto Police Force to look like? What do we want it to do? Who do we want to lead it going forward after the surprise resignation, early resignation, uh, eight months before his contract is up? And I explained in the last segment as to why the resignation of Mark Saunders. The quick email here from uh, Justin saying... How about a data or fact-based approach to policing? Not sure why that's such an outlandish proposal to the left as a whole. Uh, I'm not certain what that means, but if you have a thought or uh, something you want to express to me, 416-870-6400 is the place to call. 416-870-6400 as we're talking about the future of policing. Or if you'd like to fire me an email, which will possibly leave me scratching my head, that is alan.carter, that is A-L-A-N.carter at globalnews.ca. So when we talk about what's next for the police and what's next for the chief, keep in mind, who is it that makes that decision? Is it the province? You think Doug Ford's responsible for that? No. You think city council is responsible for that? No. It is the responsibility of the police services board, which is a difficult organization sometimes to understand. Police Services Board consists of an equal number of members that are appointed both from the regional or municipal council, in the case of Toronto would be uh, city council appointees, uh, and then there are also appointees from the province, and then one community member chosen by the council. And that board is the entity that decides who the next chief will be, although there's a search committee that it will separately go and look, but also decides things like budgetary things and all kinds of other oversight issues. And the question is, who are they really accountable to? Are they accountable to you? And when we talk about things like defunding the police, what does that mean? I want to get to the line, and Kristen Wong-Tam, who's a Toronto City Councillor, who is on the line. She has a motion that is going to go before Council, uh, calling for a cut of 10% to the police budget. That would be a total of $122 million. Kristen Wong-Tam, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Alan, for having me. When we talk about the Police Services Board, let's start with that. Are they accountable to the people? Are they accountable to the city? Well, we would like to think, you know, hypothetically that they're accountable to the people, meaning the capital P residents like you and I, uh, but ultimately they are political appointees, uh, which means that uh, you and I don't get to necessarily question them, uh, but they are also individuals that come from uh, the premier's office, probably uh, chosen by the provincial government, and then council uh, will uh, also appoint members from city council uh, to sit on that board. Um, so in the, in the best case scenario, we would have uh, individuals that are civic-minded, community-minded, but also uh, able to carry forward the positions of both city council, um, but also the position of, of, the, of the province. What we do know is that because it only has one citizen appointee, uh, it's probably the people, the we, the people that are not politicians, that are not political appointees, that they all most likely will probably feel not always heard at the police service board. And it's designed that way. It's designed to not necessarily hear from communities. It's to um, it's a form for politicians and political appointees to make big decisions around the budget and uh, and how the police um, uh, operationalize those those services. And what does that mean for the possibility of your motion to defund the police or make a cut by 10 percent? What does that mean for that actually ever going through? 
So to defund the police uh, or to divest from the police, uh, it is really um, asking people to reimagine what public safety is, is, is about. So our position here is to rebalance the budget by taking the $122 million from the police budget. And overall, the police budget is $1.22 billion. It's the largest line item on the city of Toronto's operating dollars. And then to put those dollars into um, community supports that could be um, uh, used to divert youth away from violence, to uh, help uh, programs that will allow people to gain a pathway out of poverty. Uh, It will uh, assist those who are looking for affordable housing. Um, So it really has a lot to do with um, investing in the community so that those communities who may have felt like they've never felt safe, they've never been properly adequately looked after, so that they can actually have a foothold uh, to be able to de- define for themselves what does safety look like for them. But what uh, what is con- what what role does the police board have in terms of? I mean, if you got this through past council, then what's the process with the police services board? Well, I mean, so so interestingly, let's, 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 the, the bigger question I think is uh, city council, and and the, and the city council right now does not have the ability to either approve or disapprove any specific line item on the budget. So councillors have the have the the option of do you or do you not support the, the number? The number is one point two two billion dollars. So itself, City Council, by the legislative framework that governs the police, which is the uh, the Police Services Act, which is a provincial um, body of law, um, they actually uh, do not allow City Council to get into the, the finer grain details of the police budget. So imagine you as a taxpayer, me as a taxpayer, we will capitalize the accounts to make sure that the police have, you know, at least $1.22 billion in the year 2020, but you and I don't have a say on how those dollars are spent. It's just a, a request that, that, that is approved. So council's only real power here is do we approve um, 1.22 or do we approve uh, less than, um, you know, minus the 10% and redirect those funds into other uh, community supports that also provide a path to, uh, to greater public safety. That's that's um, fascinating. Uh, speaking with Kristen Wong Tam, who is a Toronto City Councillor, and, and Councillor, I just want to play this for you because I, and mm-hmm. maybe what you just said will inform your answer, but Mike McCormick the uh, head of the Toronto Police Association was on the program yesterday uh, and I was talking about one of your tweets uh, and where you were outlining uh, essentially the, the basics of your motion and here was his reaction to that. I'm really confused because this seems to be nothing more than an emotional reaction uh, to a set of circumstances um, that, that have occurred over the last several weeks not a thought-out process of saying okay what are we trying to do here with evidence and data um, so I, I think that it's just lacking those types of things. And I just want to play one more for you because that was uh, was a, one of his comments. But this one is about specifically him asking you, where are you going to cut? Here, Here is Michael Cormack again. Yes. To say, okay, we're, we're going to find 10% of that in the policing budget. Tell me exactly what policing programs you want to cut. Let's have a discussion about that. But let's cut the crop and get, get to the real stuff. Okay, so that's the question to you, Councillor. 
Mm-hmm. So first of all, I think that um, you know the frontline officers that I've spoken to who are serving the, the the city, you know, doing a very difficult job day in and day out. The first thing that they'll probably tell you is that they're being sent to a lot of service calls that they do not feel like they should be sent to. So for example, police are the first responders to calls such as people living with mental health and having episodic violence. Uh, they are being called to intervene with uh, very complicated domestic violence matters that perhaps could have a different community approach. They're being asked to police the homeless and those who are living on the streets and, and living rough. And so Every single police officer I've ever spoken to has said, you know, Councillor, it would be great if the province actually invested more in mental health support. If we can get this person who actually needs an addiction recovery bed into a safe space where they can get the medical support that they can need. Every officer has has pretty much, you know, pretty much concurred that they don't. But what programs, I think, is the question, Councillor, to sort of interrupt. Well, no, of, of course, but but I guess I'm getting to my point is that those programs that, that the police are being asked to respond to, we've given them far too much to do. We are almost setting up the police service to fail because they are not the ones that should be responding to those those, those particular calls. But to answer uh, Mr. McCormick's question about, you know, what do we cut? And there's always the big question of what do we cut? You know, the, the first thing, as I, I noted, is that city council doesn't get to do a line-by-line review of the budget. We need to have those powers and the province needs to give that to us so we can actually specifically uh, respond to what do we cut. But just globally, things that I would consider that is not essential police work is uh, crime prevention work that you have $140,000 constable standing in front of a local community meeting talking about how to how to uh, crime-proof your, yourself or your neighbourhood. That doesn't need to be done with a constable. That can be done with other organisations. Uh, if it's about youth programming, I see a lot of police officers playing basketball with kids these days and that's part of a you know part of their job but do they need to be doing that work or can we actually put those dollars into youth uh, workers so that they can actually build relationships and to build a pathway uh, uh, into education and divert them from guns and gangs there's administrative tasks that are that we know that do not need um, you know uh, you know paid officers uh, that carry the firearm to do uh, there are police that are standing in schools there are police that we use to somehow manage every single marathon or charity run, which is extremely expensive, uh, do those jobs need to be done by police officers? Um, so there's there's that component. Like, are police officers being asked to do far too much? And so, therefore, they continue to, to need to grow the, the service by the number of employees. The other thing I would consider cutting is, do they need pepper spray, tear gas, armored um, armed uh, armor vehicles? Do they need surveillance um, equipment? Um, UK officers don't even carry firearms. Uh, and of course, the Great Britain is a very large country um, and so forth. I mean, we will never be able to really get to the root of this issue unless everybody comes to the table and says, you know what, what is what we have today does not work. There are efficiencies, but there are also some things that trial police should not be doing because there's other organizations, nonprofits, as well as institutions and hospitals that should be stepping in to do more because it's actually within their sector. We have to leave it there. Councillor Kristen Wong-Tamp, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Alan. Take care. Thanks so much for sticking with me as we talk about the future of the police and what the police should be doing in our city and what they should not be doing. Should we be considering defund the police? What do you hear when you hear that term? 
Let's get to the phone lines and your calls at 416-870-6400. Jonathan is on line one. What are your thoughts about what we need from the police that perhaps we're not getting? First of all, the, we're just saying the phrase defund the police. It has almost a negative connotation. So I, they've got to come up with a better phrase, a better something. Maybe I think for a lot of people, have... I think for a lot of people, Jonathan, in, in, in a lot of communities, that's, it's supposed to be negative to the police. That's the idea. I guess that's what I'm, I'm sort of insinuating myself. My biggest problem with the police has always been accountability. If that comes with more cameras, cameras on the cruisers, maybe instead of a suspension with pay, it's just a suspension without pay. And then if they were found not guilty or whatever it is, it retroactively they could get them. I don't know. I, I just shoot through so many things out there, like the UK, for example. If they've been having no guns and, and certain patrols, certain ways for... Why am I seeing videos online of UK police getting chased by protesters down the street uh, and they're rioting there just as much, or sorry, protesting there just as much as they are here if certain implement, implementation... But let, uh, Jonathan, let me get back to your point. What's, what's your issue on accountability? If you're saying accountability, you think our police, are our police I, accountable? Well, I, let's say I have a criminal record. We don't need to get into it, but I've been to court five, six, seven times, gone to trial. And whatever actually happens in the situation is never what's in the disclosure. Even if it's 80% true, 90%, I swear to God, just put some cameras on them, put them on the cars. Okay, Can, cameras. You're, you're in, in favor of cameras. That interesting uh, interesting segue, thanks. And Jonathan, I appreciate your call. Thanks for calling in. Uh, in our next segment, we're going to talk about police cameras, and a lot of people think that, well, this is this is the thing that's going to solve it. Well, I, I got some news for you, and we're going to talk about that in our next segment. Uh, Steve is on line three. What do you think about the police? Do we have to reimagine the role in what we ask of police, especially here in Toronto? Well, I think, you know, in order to get policing in Toronto and to get social order, it has to be a combined approach. The counselor who was in there, Christine Wong, Tam, I think it is. Yes. And she said, you know, social programs, educational programs. But it all starts when the kids are really, really young. And if okay, but hold on. I mean, I, mean, I understand, school. but if it's community approach, then why are we shoveling all this money to police forces so they can have, you know, you know, bigger guns and badder cars when maybe what we need is to put the money into a community center? Well, you know, I, I like I said, there has to be a redistribution of funds. But having so you would guns, support defund the police because that's what that means, Steve. Well, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't support defunding the police. I but that's what you just said. If we need to reallocate well, funds and take it away from the police and give it somewhere else, I, I did not say take it away from the, the police. You could reallocate it from other programs. I'm not sure what programs, but you definitely have to have uh, money in social programs where people can. Uh, get involved with the community, and the community has to take care of policing as well. There has to be a responsibility of parents to make sure their kids don't go astray so that the police don't have to deal with uh, teenagers or young adults <laughs> wielding guns from the states and... Um, okay. It's completely ridiculous to unarm police officers. Well, all right, Steve. I, pre- I appreciate your kind call. Thank you so much. That uh, that's an interesting perspective. It always comes back to a complaint about parents somehow, and I I don't know why I feel guilty. It's not like my kids are out there marauding, but I just like, oh man, maybe I'm not being a good enough parent. I think I just baked in as being a parent. Well, like all that guilt. Uh, I think I got time for one more call. Let's go back to line one and Jim. Uh, Jim, I, this is interesting. I, I, you're talking about the union. You think the union's got too much power? The police union. Uh, yeah, I think the police union should be uh, held more accountable. 
And as far as internal investigations, I think there should be a separate committee voted by the people or their local PMs. Okay, well, there, what, there, what we have is the Special Investigation Unit, which is a civilian body that investigates police. But the problem is, is that many, in large case, they're former cops. Exactly. So it, that's why I said it needs to be something, a committee that's voted by the people and the public or by the representatives or local PMs and stuff like that. My other concern is the training that uh, police officers go to. Uh, I myself have had an officer, a uh, plainclothes officer, put his hands on me. I did not know who it was. I uh, struck back. The officer picked me up. I'm only 130 pounds. He picked me up and slammed me on the ground and put his foot on my neck. When I told him I couldn't breathe, he said, yes, you can, because you're talking. So right from there, and then when I tried to approach them and say, look, this is what this officer did to me, to another officer, I was pretty much blatantly and threatened with arrest if I did not leave the scene. So the training needs to be improved. As far as the, the, the funding, I don't think so. But what they need to do is for every single cent and dollar that's spent on our police forces should be public domain, and we should know exactly where that money is going. Okay, Jim, thanks. for. I appreciate your call and uh, that kind of call for transparency. Interesting, did you get that when uh, Chris and Wong Tam was talking about that? That's something I don't think a lot of people realize, is that city council doesn't get line by line on police. That goes through the police services board. That's a different thing altogether. The, so the city council doesn't say, well, what about this thing? How come we're spending this much money over here? And so, so when the when the criticism comes back, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to cut, you're going to cut all this money, 122 million dollars. Where are you going to take it from? It's like, well, I I don't get to say. Fascinating hour, our discussion about the future of policing, what we want from police, what is it that you hear when you hear defund the police? It's getting thrown around so much, and you know, sometimes when these things get going into the public consciousness, they begin to lose their original meaning or they can get shaped and weaponized from one side or the other. And if you think defund the police means that we just don't pay the police anymore, then that's not what that means. Right now what it means is an examination of the resources that we spend on law enforcement and thinking about whether or not those eggs should go in that basket, or maybe they should go somewhere else. Maybe we should think more about it. And when we think about police reform, one of the things you're hearing more and more these days is body cams. You heard the Prime Minister talking about it yesterday, saying he's going to have a conversation with the premiers and with his provincial counterparts about getting body cameras, body-worn cameras by police officers going faster. The RCMP has said... They're going to do it. Now, here's just from the overnight, from the news from overnight, Ontario's police watchdog investigating after a man died in an interaction with police in Vaughan. This happened in North Toronto, north of Toronto, pardon me, in Vaughan. The SIU says York Regional Police were called to a home around 11 p.m. Monday night. It was a domestic incident, was the... The call, the SIU says the first officer had an interaction with a man, then other officers arrived, helped make an arrest. The agency says the man's vital signs were absent at the time, and he was pronounced dead when paramedics arrived. Police say one officer was slightly injured and taken to hospital. And as I mentioned, the RCMP have said, well, they're going to put cameras on some of their officers. Now, do we know whether or not there were any cameras on these officers here in Vaughan? And 
would I mean, we don't know what happened. Obviously, the SIU is investigating, but we also know it's going to take a long, long time, usually, for the SIU to come up with any kind of ruling. I mean, for example, what's going on in Regis uh, Korchinski-Paquette, the, the young woman who fell from the balcony, and what was the Toronto Police involvement in that? We don't know. The SIU is investigating. It's going to take a while. So here's the intersection now between the cameras and SIU. So if those officers had cameras on their persons, would we as the public get to see what happened? Would we, or would the SIU just say, we watched the video, everything's good, go home, nothing to see here? And does that engender public trust? Is that accountability? When you hear talk of body cameras, where do you think the resistance is for them? Do you think the tor- that police themselves don't want body cameras? Is it, because if you believe that, that's not true. Here's Mike McCormick, who is the president of the Toronto Police Association on this radio station, on this radio program, yesterday talking about body-worn cameras by Toronto Police. Our membership supports body-worn cameras. We piloted them. Members loved them. They wanted to get them rolled out. So that now, and there was a recent petition, that now is in the hands of the Police Service Board on a procurement contract. So that argument's already baked. We're ready to get them. Our members are waiting for them. And you're getting into the bureaucratic red tape. So that's where that lies. That is Mike McCormick, who is the president of the Toronto Police Association, saying his membership welcome cameras. They just want to get the money spent. It's red tape, and that's why they don't have them. The police are not an obstacle. But do you believe that body-worn cameras are going to solve things? One of the places that they've been deployed, you know, far more than in Canada, is the United States. And I don't know if you've been watching the news, but it's hardly like the... Deployment of body-worn cameras by police have, you know, brought the temperature down. That hasn't happened. Eric Lemming is a University of Toronto doctoral candidate who is studying police use of force and oversight, and I spoke with Eric earlier this morning over Zoom. Eric, welcome to the program. Thank you. So what are you studying in terms of police force and the use of police force? Uh, Well, so my research is looking at police use of force in Ontario and its impact on Indigenous and Black community members. So I'm looking at kind of, I'm looking at quantitative data from the SIU and other sources from Ontario Police Services in the province and interviewing Black and Indigenous community members and getting their experiences and perceptions of use of force and kind of just seeing, you know, what the experience might help us learn more from, from the quantitative data. And what's your understanding of the use of police-worn body cameras and how they are deployed in the community? I mean, so I've been looking at this, the, the technology for quite some time, and I've always been objectively skeptical of them, just because in Canada, we just haven't had that type of research kind of come out yet. There hasn't been robust studies that looks at, you know, whether the cameras are effective on multiple measurements, so whether it can, you know, improve community relations if we just don't have that evidence. I mean, in the U.S. and overseas, there's been a lot of evidence that comes out to suggest that the cameras can be effective in some capacity, but we also have research that suggests that it, it isn't, and it's not what we expect it to, to really do. What are the privacy concerns, and are those privacy concerns, do you believe, um, disproportionately felt by people of color or Indigenous peoples? For sure. I mean, privacy concerns, it's another layer to this technology. And that's a kind of a complexity of this technology in general is we don't, we have to kind of work 
those issues out in, in legislation. Um, you know, when the cameras are rolling in the public, it's going to be capturing everything going on. What about victims of crime, uh, like possibly like sexual assault victims? Are they going to have to be interviewed on camera? So a lot of things that have to go into, you know, privacy issues. In terms of whether it might impact, you know, Black and Indigenous community members, from my research and the interviews that I do with, with some, of the, some of the community members, a lot of them are kind of suspicious or skeptical that it's more so a surveillance tool. So it's an added surveillance technique that the police may use in those communities that are already targeted. So that's another issue that kind of we have to discuss as well. The, the conventional wisdom is, is that they add a layer of trust because uh, for those that are, are facing the police, that it's being recorded and that for the police themselves, that it, you know, require or it provides a document in which they can defend themselves against uh, allegations. But is, is that the experience in the real world when, it's, when these cameras are actually used? Yes and no. I mean, it's gonna. It's great for the police in terms of protecting themselves, uh, especially against you know maybe frivolous complaints that that may be lodged against them. In terms of whether it's gonna be a safety measure for the community, we don't really know that yet, because again, there's not much evidence to suggest it. It it, it makes things safer. Uh, but what we do know, I mean, if you look at it from a transparency perspective. In Canada, you have many layers of police oversight. So if cameras are rolling, uh, there's an use of force case that goes to a police oversight agency like the SIU. I mean, the video is going to be pending, you know, it won't be released because it's going to be pending that investigation. It's going to be in, in that, the control of the oversight agency. So if we ever want to see that footage, we've got to wait quite some time to even get it released. And if it will even be released, it's questionable. Uh, and at that point, there's going to be other privacy issues involved because a lot of you know, people are going to have to be edited out or audio will have to be redacted. So a lot of things go into those conversations. In the U.S., though, I mean, if you look at what happened in Minnesota with the George Floyd case, I mean, all those officers were wearing cameras, but they were also being filmed. So the video, the video evidence was actually not released by the police service of the officers involved. They instead released the video evidence of an officer who was on the other side of the road. So you kind of you get an idea of what was going on, but you don't really know from that officer's body camera, what was going on precisely. You only know because the, the bystanders video was capturing everything and that's the access that we have to it. We don't have access to the, to the actual officers who were involved, body camera. And I think that's an issue that, that many people don't think through is no. that at the end of the day, the video is in the possession of the authorities and mm -hmm. they decide what is released and when it's released. Exactly. I mean, that's a major issue that I, the public maybe just hasn't really thought that through because they think it's kind of it, they think it's going to work wonders just to put put it on put the cameras on the officer. Things are going to just change dramatically. I mean, that's not going to happen. Uh, it, it is in the control of the police officers, the police departments, and that's another thing that comes out of my research. I mean, a, a few of the participants that I've I've interviewed have kind of suggested that they wouldn't want to logic complaint against the police after body cameras are in place because they're afraid that maybe it's, it's going to be used against them in the future because the police control it, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of issues that really haven't been discussed in that aspect. And it, it could be a tool for the police down the road that it kind of gives them a little bit more power, so to speak. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Eric Fleming is a uh, PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. I really appreciate pers your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
So interesting over the last hour. I think, uh, I hope, I certainly hope that you've learned something. I have. Uh, and, and I think here's uh, my sum up uh, on what you've heard over the hour. Uh, and that is that if you think that you have accountability from police, and if you think you have accountability in terms of police spending, you don't. You don't. There are layers of bureaucracy between the city and between the province. The province is the overall arbiter of this stuff with the Police Services Act. There is no accountability. There is not enough accountability. And I think if we're going to talk about what it is that we need the police force to be going forward, we need better oversight. We need better communication. No more of this SIU will be get back to you in 18 months about what happened. So that next thing you know, there are leaks from the police force and it's, you know, written up in the Toronto Sun. We can't have that. We need accountability in terms of the money, where it goes. We need influence, direct influence, as the citizens of this city, over how the money is spent. Because you heard some of our callers say, well, we need to put money here and there. It was like, well, does that mean defund the police? Like, well, no, no, just get the money somewhere else. Well, you know that it's not that simple. And as the police budgets continue to go up, and the accountability and the transparency seems to go down, we're in the wrong direction. We need to know more about how the money is spent on the police, and we need to be able to hold officers accountable faster and with more transparency, because we don't have it in the city and we don't have it in this province. Thank you so much for spending your time with me this hour.